Good morning, everyone. Good to see all your precious faces this morning. What a great a blessing it is to be together with one another, to spend these moments worshiping God together with one another. Listen, if you are visiting with us this morning, we want you to know that we are so happy that you have chosen to uh, come our way and to give us uh, really uh, valuable moments for you in your life, to spend these moments worshiping to God uh, together with us. And so we're glad that you are here with us. For those of you who are streaming at home, we're glad that you're here with us as well, as well as those who are back in the remote area. So anyway, it's just good to be together with one another and to enjoy each other's company and to be, spend these moments uh, of worshiping God. So before I get into the lesson, a couple of things to, just to remind you of is that our new classes began beginning this morning. So in our auditorium, Wendell was teaching on Exodus and then the remote uh, answering today's skeptics. Clint kind of led it and then there's a bunch of guys are going to be teaching there. And then on the auditorium on Wednesday evening is going to be Proverbs in here. Dave Rich is going to be teaching. And then Clint and I are going to be teaching in the back about sharing uh, our, our faith. And so we'd encourage you, if you haven't already decided to be a part of one of these classes, that you start making plans to uh, do so. Of course, I'd be admiss if I didn't remind you about our lectureship that is coming up here in October, just right around the corner uh, from us. It's going to be a great lectureship. Please go down and look at the various speakers that we have. Look at their bios that was handed out to you and put in your, your boxes. These guys are incredible, and the subjects that they're going to be talking about are super timely for our day and age, and so I'd encourage you to make sure that you participate in our lectureship. Okay, so let's begin by asking this question here. Without showing hands, how many of you believe in the afterlife? Okay, so uh, as you think about the afterlife, different people look at it in different kinds of ways. How about this one here? How many of you believe in heaven? And secondly, how many of you believe in hell? Those are questions that emotionally are, are charged in a lot of different places, in a lot of different kinds of lives. When you talk about the afterlife, I am surprised that uh, when people look at the afterlife, that our world really does have a strong view of the afterlife. Barner Research Group out of Ventura, California, a while back did a survey in which the, that they conducted that revealed that in this postmodern age in which we live, where society has gone through a lot of various kinds of changes, that people really did, when they thought about it, really did have a healthy view of what the afterlife was about. In fact, in America, as they talked about these Americans and how we view afterlife, 81% of Americans believed in life after death of some sort. And surprising to me was that 79 agreed with this statement. Every person has a soul that will forever, that will live forever, either in God's presence or absence. That was somewhat staggering. Now remember, they are surveying Americans and how Americans view the afterlife and how Americans view heaven and, and how they viewed hell. So when it came down to heaven itself, 76 believed that heaven exists. Now, they varied in how they described what heaven would look like. Of that 76%, when they began to break it down, 46% said it's a state of eternal existence in the presence of God. 30% said it's an actual place of rest and reward that a person goes to after death. And then 14% said, you know, heaven is just a symbolic thing. That there's no way you can really describe heaven and what heaven really is about and there's some truth in that statement I I itself and then they researched americans about what they believe concerning hell 
And of the Americans, 71% of Americans believe that hell exists. 39% say that it's a state of eternal separation from God's presence. 32% that it's an actual place of torment and suffering where people's souls go after death. And then 13% said that hell is just a symbol of an unknown outcome after death. And so what that says is that people believe in an afterlife and that among Americans, there's a strong belief in heaven and a strong belief in hell. In fact, as a part of their survey, as they began to tabulate the things there, they found that 64% of Americans believe that they're going to go to heaven. But then they found something that was really surprising to me. I mean, it just, it's almost staggered me. Now, remember, approximately 76 believe in heaven, 71% believe in hell. Here's what the rest said. When it comes to hell, most Americans do not expect to experience hell firsthand. Only 0.05%, less than one half of 1%, think that they will go to hell at their death. That surprised me, especially when it says this many believe in heaven, this many believe in hell. And then when it came down to Americans, Americans said, listen, I'm not going to hell, which really does, I think, prove a, a point that at least I've believed for a long time, and that is that in America, no one goes to hell. Everyone goes to heaven. It may be because we're known as a Christian nation. Maybe it's because of moral values. Maybe it's because we try to do good things in the world. But the vast, 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 vast majority of people in America, what, 343 or 63 million people, they don't believe that they're going to go to hell. They think that they're more of a chance that they're going to go to heaven, which almost flies directly in the face of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount over in Matthew, the seventh chapter, verses 13 and 14. He said this, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. In my early years, when I used to do a lot of campaign work where we had door knock and, and when we go to people's doors, oftentimes I'd go to the door and say, hi, my name is Richard Sutton and this is Don Smith and we're in your area today trying to share with people how interesting an open Bible study could be. For instance, how would you answer this question? Do you believe the majority of people will go to heaven? Do you believe the majority of people will go to hell? And almost always, every single person would say, well, we believe the majority of people are going to go to heaven. And I'd say, that's interesting. Why would you answer that way? Because God is a God of love. Because I don't believe that anyone, any God would ever send anyone to such a horrific, terrible place as, as hell. I believe that they're going to go to heaven. And then I would say, would you be interested in seeing what the Bible says about it? No, thank you. Jerry, they didn't want to see. They didn't want to see Matthew, the seventh chapter, verses 13 and 14, where Jesus said, listen, the vast majority of people on planet Earth are going to go to a place of destruction where just a few are going to go to a place of, of, of paradise, a, eternal life in heaven it, itself. Pretty scary when you think about that, which brings us to the last kingdom parable in our series on the king and his, his kingdom. Now remember when you talk about the kingdom of God, you're talking about the rule and, and reign of Jesus Christ over the lives of those who follow after him. And that the kingdom of heaven is one that is spiritual, but it's physically seen within the church itself, 
simply because the kingdom resides within each and every one of us. So the kingdom becomes something that is, is real. And so Jesus, in Matthew, the 13th chapter, he goes down through seven kingdom parables. And the parables were designed to reveal the various secrets of the kingdom and of what God expounds upon and what God expects and wants you to know about what the kingdom is about. And so we began by talking about, you know, when you talk about the kingdom of God, it is spread through the word of God being spoken out to people. And it falls on different kinds of soils or hearts or, or ears. And that the vast majority are probably going to reject it, but there are going to be those who do accept what God's word says. And then we talked about the parable of the wheat and tares where Jesus said, listen, there are going to be evil people and good people who are going to dwell together. Weeds and tares are, and wheat and tares are going to dwell together until the harvest time, and then there's going to be a separating of the, the two. And then we talked about the kingdom of God would start in very insignificant kinds of ways like a mustard seed or, or like the leaven that would influence a lot of people. It's going to start out very small, but it's going to grow rapidly or it's going to grow big. And so he's talking about the growth of the kingdom of God. And then we talked about the value of those who are in the kingdom. And so we talked about the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the, the great price. And we said that in both of those cases that those people were willing to sell everything they had, sacrifice whatever they had to do in order to obtain that valuable treasure. In one sense, God has sacrificed all in order to purchase us who are more valuable to him than anything else or could be talking about us being willing to sacrifice whatever we need to sacrifice in order to obtain the blessings of the kingdom. Which brings us finally to the final parable. And in that parable, it's the parable of the dragnet. It begins over Matthew the 13th chapter beginning in verse 47 and goes down to about verse 50 and then Jesus has some other things to say there but when you talk about the parable of the dragnet the parable of the dragnet is an interesting parable that Jesus ends with listen to what he said Matthew chapter 13 beginning in verse 47 again the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind and when it is filled, they drew it up to the beach, and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, and the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels shall come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood these things? And they said to him, yes. That's scary if there's any parable in all the scriptures as you go down through those seven parables this one to me is probably the most frightening of all the parables well why because it's talking about kingdom judgment that's what it's talking about when you look at this parable he's talking about a warning of an end time judgment that's going to affect all souls both good and bad all are going to be gathered together to the sh shores of eternity and there there's going to be a separation that takes place and there is a terrifying moment that is described there in this parable i think there are four things that stand out they all have begin with d words one he talks about a description of this parable and what it's about Secondly, he talks about the doctrine of the parable, the teaching, the, the principles that surround the parable that he wants these people 
to here. Thirdly, he's going to talk about the destruction that's involved in this parable. And finally, there is an inferred declaration. And so let's start off by talking about the description of the parable. Jesus uses something that was very common in his day. Remember the parable of the wheat and tares? That was common among farmers. This is going to be very common among those who are fishermen, especially as he is speaking these lessons from around the, sh uh, the seashore of, of Galilee. He's going to be talking to a lot of fishermen there. When I was over in Israel, I remember staying at a kibbutz, which was right on the shore of Galilee. We went to Capernaum, right on the Sea of Galilee, Magdala, right on the Sea of Galilee. These are all fishing villages. That's how they make their living, fishing in the Sea of, of Galilee. So he talks about something that is very common. You might call it a fish story, only this is not a fish story like some fish stories we hear. You know, these fish stories, these are not exaggeration. This is a story that says that all fish are going to be measured. All fish are going to be accounted for, and all fish are going to go give a, a reckoning, and all fish are going to be sorted. And there's not going to be any exemption of the fish that are there. On the Sea of Galilee, there were three ways in which, you know, they, they caught fish. They, they still practice the same things today. One was, was the hook and line kind of fish, and that's where you catch one fish at a time. The guy's got a pole, he's got a line and a hook on the other end of it, and that's how they fish over on the Sea of Galilee today. But then there was a, a second method, and it's where it was a round net is, was taken into consideration. It's called an amphithelistron, amphithelistron, I think is how they, you pronounce it. It's a round net, the the fisherman would throw the net over his shoulder, would wade out into the shallow water, and he would look for a school of fish. And when he sees the school of fish there, he would cast out the net over the school of fish, and then it's weighted on the edges, and it would begin to drift down over the fish and entrap them. Then pull the rope or the string at the top of the net, which causes the net to come together like a bag, if you will, and all the fish within that net would be trapped, and then they are pulled to shore and then they are, are taken. So that was one way. Another way that I think Jesus is talking about here is the dragnet fishing. Dragnet fishing happens when either a boat or two boats take a large net. Sometimes the net could be as long as a quarter of a mile. Some say even as much as a mile. And it's taken out sometimes by two boats that would go out into the depths of the water. And then they would return back to shore with the ropes uh, connecting to the net. Sometimes they would just take the net and they would anchor it at the shore with a number of men hanging on to the net and then they would take the boat out and they would stretch out the net that is weighted on the bottom, floats on top, and they would come back around to the shore where they're waiting for some other guys that are there with hands ready to pull the net. Years ago when I used to go over to Ghana, West Africa to do evangelism, we went to a, a fishing village by the name of Pram Pram, which right is on the coast of the Atlantic. And these fishermen had these large canoes that they would take these huge nets and they would take it out into the Atlantic, come back around where guys met. These things had ropes that were like that big around. And they would have anywhere from 10 to 30 men waiting there. And those guys were dressed down in just to their shorts, and they would start hauling that net in. I mean, a foot at a time, inches at a time. And they were pulling extremely hard work. 
All the while they were singing songs, they're pulling on these nets until he pulled them in. And once they would pull them in and the net began to come to shore, they'd pull it up on the shore and then they would begin to separate the fish. This is the fishing that Jesus is talking about. Dragnet fishing. With dragnet fishing, there is no discrimination. When you talk about dragnet fishing, wherever that net drags across the bottom of the water comes to the shore. It could be trash, it could be weeds, it could be... Big fish, small fish, good fish, bad fish. One thing about the dragnet is it does not discriminate whatsoever in catching both good fish and bad fish. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Now, on the Sea of Galilee, there are probably 18 species of fish. Most of them are good fish. They're edible fish by Levitical law. We're talking about Jews here. We're talking about those who live in the mosaical system. And so when you look at Leviticus, the 11th chapter, it tells you those fish that are edible, kosher fish. They're fish with, with fins or with scales. That was the edible fish. Galilee, probably one of the more popular fish, sometimes called St. Peter's fish, was tilapia. It's a white-fleshed fish. I love tilapia, by the way. It was tilapia. The other major catch was sardines. And then there were some carp that are thrown in there and a bunch of those kinds of fish. But there's also some bad fish that are not, co uh, are not kosher that God says don't eat. It's fish like catfish or eels. Eels don't have fins. Catfish have no scales. Slick-bodied things. When I was in Israel, I stayed at a place called a kibbutz, right on the Sea of Galilee. A kibbutz was a communal affair where people gathered together to farm lands, but this kibbutz had turned into a, a hotel, but it serviced a lot of Orthodox Jews, but we stayed there, our group did. And one morning, I got up real early in the morning, and I decided to take a walk along the Sea of Galilee and use my imagination. And so I'm walking along the Sea of Galilee, and there was a rock pier that some men had built out there. And so I walked out on that pier, and as I walked out on the pier, I looked down, and there were catfish in the water. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about catfish like this giant catfish and i thought why in the world aren't they catching these catfish they're huge and then it, then i remember what the law said catfish are forbidden no scales can't eat those things eels can't eat those things no fins and so only this certain kind of fish was edible or acceptable that's the kind of fishing that jesus is talking about dragnet fishing so that's the physical side of that story. Now let me talk to you about the doctrinal side of the parable. By doctrinal side, I'm talking about the teaching or the principle of the parable itself. What Jesus is talking about, he's talking about the sea. The Sea of Galilee represents the sea of humanity. The good fish represent those who are saved. The bad fish represent those who are, are lost. And the dragnet that's judgment that is coming our way. It's forever moving our, our way. And humans, all humans, are going to get caught up in the judgment itself. And in the end, the fishermen represent the angels who are going to do the sorting of the good fish from the bad fish or those who are lost and those who are saved. And so this parable pictures a time of judgment when the angels will do justice and separate the wicked from among the righteous. And so the net of God's judgment moves 
uh, silently through the sea of humanity. Most of us are not even aware of it happening, but I want you to know this morning that all of you are encompassed by a large dragnet that is pulling you ever closer and closer to your eternal destiny where a separation is going to take place. Believers to eternal life, unbelievers to eternal destruction. And it's silently happening around us. And it's going to be awful. It's going to be awful, terrifying for unbelievers. Because it's more than just a separation that Jesus talks about here. The judgment will be a huge, huge surprise. Especially to those who are of the lost or of the bad fish. You see, people, they move about in the net thinking that everything is cool. 64% of people say that they're going to heaven in America. Less than half percent of 1% says that there is a hell that is a possibility. And so they move about within this, this, this net here thinking everything is, is cool as though they're forever going to be free. But from time to time, you know, they might fill a brush, if you will, with the net itself. But they swim away very quickly. And by taking a brush with the net, I'm talking about those who from time to time have a conscience about there being a God and about there being a heaven and, and there being a hell and that there is a day of judgment or reckoning that is coming their way. And so they feel that, but they quickly swim away from it and quickly forget all about it, never knowing that the drag, dragnet, that God's sovereign plan is inescapable. No one escapes the dragnet, Jesus says. This invisible net of God's judgment encroaches Every human being, just as it encroaches the fish in the parable. And then all of a sudden, things are not cool. In fact, it's, just, it's uncool. And Jesus' description of it is that it's going to be a fiery furnace. And that that fate is then sealed at that moment. But most people, most people, they don't perceive judgment in that way. We don't perceive hell in, in that way. When we talk about hell, you know, it's something that really bothers our emotions. We don't want to think about it. We really don't want to talk about it. Frankly, to be honest with you, I don't like to even preach about it. And I've been here for almost 20 years, and you could probably count on one hand the times that I, I have. It's not a comfortable subject to talk about what is surprising though is that jesus talked more about hell than he ever did about love and some of you said that he talked more about hell than he did about heaven i don't know as i agree with that by the way but he talked a lot about in fact he talked more about hell and eternal destruction and a fiery furnace than he than than any prophet or apostolic writer or apostle ever did in fact, it was a part of his teaching from the beginning of his ministry all the way up to the very end of his ministry. He talked about these things. And what he taught was is that there is a judgment that is coming and everyone is going to find themselves in the midst of that judgment. So for those who are unbelievers, it's going to be a bad day. It's going to be unbelievably terrifying. But I want you to know something else. It's not a good day for God either on the judgment. God's not wanting to send people to hell. In fact, I'm convinced from what the scriptures teach 
especially over in John, the third chapter, verses 18 and following down through about verse 21. If you open your Bibles and just look at that on your own sometime, you'll see that God has done everything he can to save mankind. And if people find themselves in judgment on the bad end of judgment, it's because they have chosen that direction in their lives. But Peter said this in 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, that the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. So what's God desire? God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to go to heaven. If you've ever wondered to yourself, what is God waiting for? You look at the world around you, and you see all the evil and all the ugliness around you, and you say to yourself, what is God, why, why does he tarry? What is he waiting for? When is he going to do something about this? And the answer is, is that passage behind me. He's waiting for that one that will accept his son, Jesus. Maybe he's waiting for you. Maybe he's waiting for that relatives of yours that you're so in love with maybe he is waiting for your friends maybe he's waiting for that grocer clerk or that gas station attendant or that person that just driving beside you on the road on a busy day god tarries long because of his love for humanity and souls because he knows there's a day coming when the dragnet is going to be pulled to the shore and separation is going to take place which brings us to the third point, and that's the destruction that is talked about in the parable. Jesus said that the angels, that they'll cast the bad fish into the furnace of fire, and there he says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, as I've already mentioned to you, you know, no one likes to think about that. I don't like to talk about it. And yet, Jesus, he warned about it. Jesus warned people of hell, declaring that there is no escape for those who refuse his gracious and loving offer of salvation. And when it comes to the subject of hell, the human mind, I don't think we can even begin to comprehend how bad it really is. Any more so that when you talk about heaven, that you can comprehend the bliss that is there. But so you understand what hell is about, let me share with you four thoughts about hell itself. The first one is this. Hell, hell is a place of constant torment, misery, and pain. Jesus describes hell as a darkness or outer darkness. So how do you envision outer darkness? When you think about dark things or being in darkness, if, if we were to turn out all the lights in here and all the exit signs were out and the, even the light that creeps out of the door there, there would be out and it would just be pitch black in here so you couldn't see the front of your hands, what would that feel like? What if I said that you're going to stand here for five hours in this darkness? I mean, how would that, how would that affect you emotionally? What if it was for an eternity? What if it went on for eons and eons and eons, this outer darkness, this black darkness? When it's dark, don't you feel colder? When it's dark, don't you feel lonely? When it's dark, doesn't it feel hopeless? Jesus said there are going to be those who are going to be cast into outer darkness. Hell's torment 
is also described as fire that will never go out and cannot be extinguished. So it almost seems, okay, how can you have a fire and darkness at one at the same time? I don't know. What I do know is that it's a fire that burns at the flesh and cannot be extinguished. The rich man in the story of Lazarus and the rich man, he said that he is in such torment and fire that he asked for a single drop of water to be placed upon his tongue so that he could get relief. A single drop of water. A fire that burns. I think we got to get the idea of fire. You ever been burned? Imagine that going on for an eternity. No wonder it's called a place of weeping and gnashing of, of teeth. Hell will involve the torment of both body and soul. Neither the soul nor the body is annihilated at, at death. Nor will there ever be. When an unsaved person dies, their soul goes from the presence of God into everlasting torment, which will never end. One place, Jesus spoke of the worm that never dies. I kind of struggled with that last phrase, where the, where the worm does not die. One translation says, where their worm does not die. So at the loss of a loved one, you may bury them and then the natural organism of worms takes place and they'll feed upon the flesh until it's gone. Reduce it to nothing. But these maggots never cease to feed. It's, it's always there. It's unimaginable. Terrifying. Sickening to your soul. The torment of hell will be everlasting. Nothing will be so terrible about hell as its endlessness. Jesus used the same word when he talked about the duration of, of heaven. These, he says, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. He's talking about the separation of the sheep and goats in that story there. So when you talk about hell, it's an extremely terrible place. It's everlasting. Total absence of hope. There will be no appeal. There will be no loopholes loopholes, no amount of regret, crying, begging for a second chance. There'll be no possible way out. It'll just be too late. So as you listen to this, what does that say to you? I mean, how does that, I mean, how does that just smack your soul? Because if there's anything that this parable teaches after those first three, it's this one here, is you don't want to go there. You don't want to go there. I think hell is that and much worse than that. Beyond just the fact of separation from anything that is good or wholesome or loving or kind, that separation from God itself should be enough to convince us. But if those other things get it to you, then that's great. If it scares the hell out of you, then that's what it's supposed to do, and that's what Jesus is trying to do to those who are listening to what he is, he is saying. You do not want to go here or there to that place. You don't want to go there. You don't want your loved ones to go there. You don't want your friends to go there. You don't want your strangers to go there. You don't want your worst enemy to go there. That's how bad it is. Which brings us finally to the declaration of the parable. Jesus ends in verse 50 by saying, have you understood these things? And they, of course, say, well, yeah, yes, we do. 
do you understand these things? It's like he's saying, are you guys getting this? Have you understood, are you, are, is it computing with you what I am trying to tell you in these parables? What I'm trying to get across to you about the spread of the kingdom and the value of the kingdom and the, and the significance of the kingdom and the fact that there's going to become a judgment in the, the kingdom? Have these things, have you understood these things? Do we really believe that even though we live alongside, you know, unbelievers like wheat and, and tares like good fish and bad fish, that there is a time that is coming when we shall be separated? Do we understand the reality of judgment? Do we believe in the torments of hell? I know because you're Americans, you believe in heaven. And I know that because you're Christians, you believe in heaven. But I must not miss the point here. When Jesus is speaking these parables, guess who he's talking to? He's not talking to those bad people out there. He's talking to those who are followers of his. And he's trying to drive home significant points about the kingdom of which he is king over. So in light of judgment, how should you respond to this parable? How should you respond to this parable? Well, the first thing is you don't want to miss the invitation. The invitation is open now, so you don't want to miss the invitation. A little by the name of Randy Alcorn, he wrote a book called Heaven. Simple book, but in this book of heaven, he tells a story about a professional singer, true story about a professional singer by the name of uh, Ruthana Metzger. She was invited to sing at uh, one of the wealthiest men in Seattle at his wedding. So she went to this wedding. It was a beautifully adorned wedding, and she sings for the groom and for the bride. Afterwards, there's going to be a reception that is at one of the most expensive, most luxurious hotel, I mean, restaurants in Seattle at the top, at the highest skyscraper there. And so the wedding is over, and everyone goes to the reception, and Ruthana Metzger and her husband, they arrive at the reception, and they go up to the door, and they're looking inside, and it's beautiful in there. Incredible decorations. Food everywhere on big tables. The rich, the famous, the beautiful people are there. And they're so excited about being able to get into that place there. And so they go up to the Metro D, and the Metro D says, may I see your invitation? And Metzger says, well, I, I was the singer at the wedding. And so my name should be there. And so he checks through the list, and he says, your name is Ruthana Metzger? Yes. I'm sorry, madam, but I don't see your name here. Well, listen, I sang at the wedding, and the, the bridegroom, he knows me. And so, please check your list again. So the man goes down through the list again, and the major D says, uh, Mrs. Metzger, your name is not here. But, but he goes, no, no, listen, there are no buts here. Your name is either here or it's not here. And it doesn't matter who you know or what you did. Your name is not here. And then he turns around to another servant, and he calls him over, and he says, Please escort Mr. and Mrs. Metzger to the service elevator and take them down. So from the very highest of the elevator, they get into the service elevator, and the servant pushes G, which means garage, and they go all the way down to the garage floor. When they walk out the door, there's the garbage bin that is there. And Mr. Metzger says to Rathana, he says to her, what happened here? 
didn't you get an invitation? And she said, I did get an invitation that I was supposed to RSVP to, but I was so busy, I forgot about it. And when we got here, I thought it'd be good enough that I know the guy. And Alcorn said this, too many people are too busy to respond to the invitation. When it comes to judgment and heaven and hell, you should never be that busy. The only people that are admitted into heaven are those who know Jesus, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. How should we respond to this parable? I'm talking about Christians. How should we respond to this parable? We should actively persuade people to entrust their souls to Jesus. We shouldn't just give lip service to it. We should actively do that. We need to pray about the other fish in the net. The fish in the net that have not come to know Jesus. This is where the parable breaks down a little bit, by the way. Because in the parable, there's a separation of the good fish from the bad fish. The good fish are put into containers or eternal life. The bad fish are discarded or thrown into the furnace. But in life, people can go from being catfish into being tilapias. In the kingdom... In the kingdom, as I swim about in my net, in this dragnet that is forever moving closer to the shores of eternity, I have time to speak to the other fish that are catfish and eels and help them to be converted or changed into those who are saved. What's our motivation? Well, Richard, our motivation should be love. No doubt about that. I talk a lot about that our motivation for the love of mankind should drive us, should motivate us. But let me tell you what, the reality that people without Christ are headed toward hell, that's a pretty good motivation in my mind. What can we do about it? Well, what about, I mean, this is easy. Out on the table out there, there's a stack of these cards this deep that you can take and give to your friends and invite them. Let these 10 guys do the heavy lifting for you. They're good at what they do. They'll be able to tell them some incredible evidence about the fact that God does exist and that Jesus can impact their lives. Invite them to come to the lectureship. Or if you're saying, I don't know how to save souls, I don't know how to get started here, then come to Clint's class or my class on Wednesday night. Sorry, Dave. Proverbs is going to be a great class, okay? You'll be a wise man or woman if you go to his class on Proverbs. But if you don't know how to save a soul, you need to be in Clint's class or my class. We're going to share that class. Because we'll talk to you about why saving souls is important, and then we're going to show you ways that you can go about doing that. We need to be serious about this. You see, the main question is not have you invited, but do you even care that someone you know may be described in this parable as someone who will be cast into a fiery furnace? It's not about what you know, it's about what you care about. Do you care about these fish? Luigi Teresio. This guy lived in the latter part of the 18th century, I think 1794, 74 when he was born. Lived into the 19th century. He was a cabinet maker. He did pretty well for himself, but he wasn't just a cabinet maker. Uh, he was a, a violin hunter of his day. He went out, he 
bought and sold violins, and he collected violins, like a lot of people back in that day uh, did. He was also a, a hermit guy. And so one day they found Luigi Teresio, they found him dead in his house. But they discovered something else in his house. Up in the dusty old attic, they found 246 exquisite violins that he just collected and kept to himself. A lot of collectors did that, bought the, the, the violins. He would then buy it from them and keep them. His greatest treasure was found in an old wooden, wooden bureau at the very bottom shelf or in the very bottom drawer, and they opened it, and in it they found a Stradivarius, the greatest treasure of all. And Luigi Teresio kept that to himself, along with 245 other violins that were silent. They're called the silent violins because no one heard for centuries the, the beautiful music that resonates from one of these incredible pieces of music. The Stradivarius that they found there had not been played for 146 years, speechless. We think about that and we think, why would a guy do that? Why would he not share that with the music world, the thing that these violins could, could do? Well, I would ask you the same question. How could we have the good news of Jesus and be speechless and not tell someone about that? that people have never heard it, need to hear about it. Charles Spurgeon, a preacher over in England, once said these words, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees. Let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. I stand so convicted by those words. I stand so convicted by the words of Jesus in this parable. It seems like such a simple parable, doesn't it? But it has eternal ramifications when it comes down to your soul and my soul and the soul of our loved ones and of our friends and those we go to school with and work with and even the stranger on the street. So I guess the last thing I would say to you is that I'm talking about eternity. And the question is, is where are you going to spend it? Where are you? Where are we? Where are we going to spend eternity? I don't know about you, but I plan on being on the good side of that net. And my plan is to make sure that I'm not a separated one except separated going to heaven. And I want to drag as many of you along with me. Not fun listening to sermons on hell, is it? But I wouldn't be truthful to you if I didn't tell you about it because Jesus did. And if we're going to be true to the world, we, word, we just can't talk about heaven and love. Sometimes we've got to talk about uncomfortable things like hell and destruction. Because there's way too many people going there. 
And we need to save as many as we can while we have time. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. But that's our job, to help them, to fish for them. So the lesson is yours. Your response is yours as well. While together we stand and sing.